Good morning. We're going to be reading from Galatians 5, uh, verses 13 through 25. For you were called the freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are, you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its, sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. But the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, fractions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you that, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If you live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much that you have given us your spirit, Lord, and that you have set us free. Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability to walk in that, that we would be obedient to the spirit. Uh, Lord, I just pray uh, for the message today, Lord, that you would uh, make our hearts attentive, Lord, that we would look in our lives and allow the Holy Spirit to convict our lives of sin and the areas where you would have us um, walk closer to you. I just thank you so much for this body and thank you for this time. Let's pray this in your name. I want to begin this morning by borrowing a very effective illustration from S. Lewis Johnson's great sermon on this same passage. It's a story about three dogs. But I'm going to change it up some and talk about three dogs that I actually knew. The first dog was my first dog. His name was Sam. My parents got him when I was about five years old. He was a a purebred dachshund, but he definitely did not have the temperament that most of you would associate with a dachshund. Sam lived life on his own terms. (laughs) If you got anywhere near him when he was eating, he would growl at you very menacingly and his eyes would follow you like a hawk. And if you press the point and got any nearer to him, he would flat out bite you and draw blood. And my brother and I pressed that point several times when we had the scars to prove it. We did not have a backyard fence in those days. In fact, most people didn't. We could run all the way up the block through the backyards and just have to hop over one short cyclone fence. But we had a little fenced-in pen for Sam so he would be able to be outside without getting away. Now, if you know anything about dachshunds, you know they were bred to to dig. And Sam was not a fan of constraints. So he did his great escape tunneling routine on a regular basis and then went roaming all over the neighborhood. 
Sam lasted almost exactly one year to the day because one of his favorite activities during his many excursions was to bite the tires of passing cars. One day he finally actually bit one. While I was yelling at him from the top of my lungs uh, in our front yard, uh, he ended up buried in our backyard in a boot box that same day. Sam was an antinomian. That means he rejected every notion of compliance with law. He did exactly what he wanted to. He was licentious. If he wanted to do something and could, he would. The only thing that ever actually constrained Sam's behavior was the first and last tire he bit. I met the other two dogs when I was a pool cleaner during my seminary years. The second dog was Dex. Dex was a German Shepherd something mix. And the first time I walked into his yard with all my pool equipment in hand, he was sitting in a far corner of the yard just watching me. It was very spooky. As soon as I sat all my stuff down, picked up my long-handled tile brush and started brushing the tile around the pool, Dex just about gave me a heart attack. I saw this blur coming from the edge of my peripheral vision, and before I even realized what it was, he had closed the distance and opened his mouth. And he clearly had the intention of removing a, a, a piece of my leg. He never made a sound, by the way. Now, being quite the expert with a long-handled tile brush, I flipped my brush around and whacked him on the head just before he managed to actually make contact with his teeth. He gave out a whimper. He ran back to the same corner, sat in the same position, and I hoped that was the end of it. It was not. I soon realized that he intended to uh, make another stab at it, but like the Borg in Star Trek Next Generation, he had learned from his first failed attempt and he had made an adjustment to his strategy. Instead of sprinting toward me, he was trying to edge toward me the way a cat stalks a squirrel. Realizing what he was up to, I filled one of my large buckets with about three gallons of water and the next time Dex took a few guarded steps in my direction, I picked up the bucket and ran headlong toward him and he parked himself in a defensive posture, which made him a really easy target. And I doused him with all three gallons. And it was a cold day. Unlike the Borg, Dex only had two strategies in his playbook. He tried to implement that second one a few more times. But I kept winning and he kept losing. <laughs> On every subsequent visit to Dex's pool, the first thing I did when I came through the fence was I went and filled my bucket with water and got ready to lay down the law. The one and only thing that constrained his malicious behavior was his fear of the consequence of breaking my law. See, Dex was the canine version of a legalist. Now, I should note at this point that both of those first two dogs were really bad at relationships, <laughs> at least with pool cleaners. That'll come into play later. The third and last dog was Ginger. 
Ginger was the perfect breed specimen of a Pomeranian, and Ginger loved me more than food. Every time I came to clean her pool, as I gathered up my equipment from the trunk of my car, I would hear Ginger bouncing off the other side of the gate that I was just about to go through to get into the yard. And as I worked my way through the gate, over to the pool, with my vast collection of pool cleaning stuff, she would follow me the whole way, running tight circular routes and doing bank turns off of my shins at the end of each loop. I didn't have to worry at all about closing the gate until I had laid all my stuff out just the way I wanted it beside the pool. And if you know me, you know that was very precise. Because Ginger never once even made a move to try to get out the gate and run away. That's because all of her attention and affection was fixated on me. She didn't want to roam the neighborhood. She wanted to be where I was. As soon as I put down the last of my stuff, just like clockwork, Ginger would come up right by my feet and she would do several tight spins and then she would sit down waiting with eager anticipation for me to stoop down on one knee and give her the requisite snuggles. No matter how bad my day had been, I always loved cleaning Ginger's pool. She was neither licentious nor legalistic. She did not need an externally imposed law to control or constrain her. And she didn't care to rebel and insist on her own way. Ginger just loved me and would have done anything in her power to please me because she loved me. I'm sure I could have come out there one day with a razor and shaved all three pounds of hair off of that six-pound dog, and she still would have followed me around like a shadow. And that's a, an imperfect illustration at many levels, as most are. But I think it's helpful for understanding what God intends our life in the Spirit to be like. We're supposed to be like Ginger. In the first half of Galatians 5 we, that we looked at last week, Paul addressed the error of legalism. The legalist, like Dex, is guided by an externally imposed standard of righteousness that in reality has nothing to do with what's in his heart. And it has nothing to do with real godliness. The legalist, relying on his own power and effort, might manage to satisfy men but he will never be pleasing in the eyes of God. Legalism in the church is a move away from grace and freedom back to the slavery of works-based righteousness. Here in the second half of Galatians, Paul addresses the second error, the error of licentiousness. The licentious person, like Sam, isn't much concerned with pleasing either God or men. His concern is to please himself, to indulge his own fleshly desires. He casts aside any notion of compliance with the standard that's outside of himself. And he does what he wants to do. Licentiousness in the church treats the grace of God as if it were a license to sin. But the real focus of all that Paul says in chapter 5 is not about either of those errors. 
It's about an altogether different way of living that contrasts as profoundly with both legalism and licentiousness as brilliant light contrasts with utter darkness. God's cure for both of those errors is the love, longing, and leading of the Holy Spirit within every believer and within His church. The love, longing, and leading of the Spirit makes us obsessed both with enjoying God and with pleasing God. Not as a dog toward her favorite pool cleaner, but as beloved sons and daughters toward our beautiful Redeemer and Master. As we proceed through this wonderful passage, we'll look at those three aspects of the Spirit's life and work in us. Starting with His love. Back in verses 5 and 6 of this fifth chapter, Paul declared that it is through the Spirit that we now by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For the finishing out of God's work of imparting Christ's righteousness to us. He has imputed it to us in justification. That means He's credited Christ's righteousness to our account. Now He is in the process of imparting that righteousness to us. We look forward with eager anticipation to the finishing out of that marvelous gift. Paul made it emphatically clear that legalism, law-keeping as a means to be righteous in the eyes of God, counts for nothing. What counts for everything is faith working through love. Now Paul addresses a second error, the error of licentiousness. Lawless self-indulgence. And as he does so, he returns to that same wonderful reality of God's love working through us toward one another. And it was for that loving service that Christ freed us. Verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Christ delivered us entirely from our loveless enslavement to self so that we would know the marvelous freedom of loving and serving others without reservation. Knowing that we are loved by God Himself. 1 John 4, verses 9-13 says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His... And everybody thinks the next word is love. No. He has given us of His Spirit. We love others because God the Holy Spirit is in us, loving others through us. We are vessels, 
We are instruments of the love of God. God is the source. And He's right here within each of His redeemed children. The Holy Spirit took up residence within us not only to seal us for God's courts above, but to use us here and now to love others with the love of God. Not merely to love others the same way we've been loved by God, but with the same love. His love. Instead of struggling to muster up from within ourselves a love for people that can never come from us, the indwelling Holy Spirit has become our endless, unquenchable source of love both toward God and toward people created in the image of God. And that love, Paul says, fulfills the righteous requirement of God's law perfectly. In 5.14, he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that doesn't mean that because the Spirit is in us, we keep all the commandments perfectly. All the ordinances and laws and rules that we find in the Old Testament. What it means is that God's love working through us fulfills the requirement of the law perfectly. The law shows us the character of God, but the love that comes from the Holy Spirit dwelling within us actually carries out the character of God toward other people. His love goes way beyond the letter of the law. The love of the Spirit working through us fulfills the very spirit of the law. The point of the law. The letter of the law tells me to build a railing around my flat roof so that my neighbor won't fall off my roof and break his neck. Deuteronomy 22.8 But love compels me to do a hundred other things to protect my neighbor. Not in order to avoid being punished by God or sued by my neighbor. <laughs> but because I genuinely desire my neighbor's well-being. I want to give Him what God has given to me. When the love that we possess and extend is the love of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us, we experience a radically different way of living and of loving. In verses 15-18, to 18, Paul moves from the love of the Spirit in us to the longing of the Spirit in us. He speaks of two different desires. Two different sources of desire that are in opposition to each other. One is the flesh and the other is the spirit. The word desire refers to the, to the longings of the inner man. It refers to our deepest feelings and passions and yes, lusts. Sometimes in, in Christian circles, we treat the whole realm of desire as a, as a bad thing. But God doesn't. Apart from Christ, our desires, our deepest feelings and longings control us, driving us to a self-absorbed existence that condemns and cripples and eventually destroys us. 
Jeremiah, speaking of the longings of the innermost man, said, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17.9 The world's confident and relentless appeal to us is follow your heart. Everything will be great if you just follow your heart. Are you in a difficult marriage? Your heart's telling you exactly what you need to do. Put an end to that pain. Get out of there right now and never look back. Follow your heart. Teenagers, are you sick of the constraining rules that your parents impose on you? That don't even make sense to you? Follow your heart. Ignore those rules and do what feels right to you. And as soon as you can, get out of that house. Get out on your own so that you can do the things that you want to do. Are you sexually attracted to members of your own gender? The world and the flesh say to you, go for it. Follow your heart. Do you find yourself more attracted to a woman in your workplace than you are to your own wife? Your heart says, ditch your wife. Go where you want to go. Or if you want to, do both. And God tells us in no uncertain terms that following your heart is the fast track to a devastating existence. Devastating to you, devastating to everyone around you, but much more importantly, devastating to relationship with God. But praise God, there is another desire that God remade us to follow. And I'm talking about us who belong to Jesus Christ through faith. It's not our desire. It is the perfect desire, the always God-pleasing longing of the Holy Spirit within us. It is the Spirit's desire that propels us to godliness and conformity with Christ. It is the Spirit's desire within us that produces a hunger and thirst for righteousness and that makes us long for relationship and unhindered fellowship with God. That makes us hunger for every word that proceeds from the mouth of God more than for our own physical food. It is the longing of the Spirit within us that makes us like ginger toward God. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2 put it beautifully. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for Thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That's what the Spirit does in the heart of the child of God. There is no intersection between these two desires. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. Paul says in Galatians 5.17, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. These two are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. There is an amazing, astounding thing going on between God the Father and God the Holy Spirit that draws you and me 
right into their relationship with one another. The desire, the longing of the Holy Spirit in you is for perfect fellowship and communion with the Father through you. And the desire, the longing of the Father is for perfect fellowship and communion with His Spirit in you. Listen to the words of James from James verses 4, 1 through 5. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust. This is the desire of the flesh. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulteresses. And he's talking to Christians. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now listen to verse 5. Listen carefully. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose when it says, He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell within you? The longing, the jealous desire of God the Father is for perfect fellowship and communion with the Spirit who is in you. And the longing of the Holy Spirit in you is for perfect fellowship and communion with the Father through you. God is insinuating us in that relationship. The desire that pulls us back to the path of life and blessing every time we start to stray is the desire that fixes our eyes on God. It is the desire that comes from the Holy Spirit of God within us. It doesn't come from us. It comes from Him. Just like the love of God. So it should be no surprise to us that Paul says in verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. To walk by the Spirit is to surrender to the desire and persuasion of the Holy Spirit who is in us and to be empowered by Him so that we act on that desire and we follow that persuasion. To walk by the Spirit is to let the Holy Spirit so take over our minds and hearts that He takes control of our feet and our hands. It is to, it is to submit to the Spirit so that He uses these vessels to do His work and to carry out His will in the world. Not our will. That's the love of the Spirit in us and the longing of the Spirit in us. In verses 18-23, to Paul focuses on the leading of the Spirit in us. Verse 18, he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. It's not the law that leads us. It's not the flesh that leads us. It is the indwelling Holy Spirit who leads us. The desires of the flesh, 
produce a very predictable way of living and acting in those who are led by the flesh. And the desire of the Spirit produces a very predictable way of living and acting in those who are led by the Spirit. Verses 19-23, to Paul presents the stark contrast between the deeds or works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And that contrast is again like comparing a moonless, starless winter night with the noonday sun at summer. The deeds of the flesh are selfish to the core. They consist not only of the sins that gratify men's physical and sexual lusts, immorality, impurity, sensuality, but they consist of all the things that destroy relationship between us and God and between us and people. Idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these. These are the works done by those who are led by the flesh. The people who are led by the flesh and who thus zealously practice such deeds will not see the light of the kingdom of God unless God redeems them. It is an exceedingly common theme in the New Testament that no one who practices evil will be included in the coming kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, Revelation 21 and 22, and this passage and many others. So does that mean, does that mean that the way to be saved, to obtain eternal citizenship in the kingdom of God is to stop doing those sinful, selfish things and to start doing the things that God calls, that Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit? Absolutely not. If the answer to that question were yes, then you and I would be justified by works, not by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the Gospel would be a completely different message than it is. Please hear me on this. Paul's purpose here for contrasting the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit is not so that we'll know what we have to stop doing and start doing in order to be saved. It is so that we who have been saved will be crystal clear about the fact that God redeemed us to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. He saved us in order to produce in us the fruit of godliness so that we may be righteous not only in position, but in practice. Paul's appeal here to the Galatian saints as in his other letters is in effect, how can you who have been made alive to God and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ do the things that dead people do? Live in keeping with who you are, not who you aren't. He makes the same essential point in Ephesians 5. He says, you were, you were formerly darkness. But now, you are children of light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Be who you are, not who you aren't. Live and act in keeping with your true identity. 
Not your former identity. Do not be partakers with dead men. Instead, let the light that is in you expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness so that others may live. Beloved, God wants you to know who's doing the leading in your life. For us who have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ alone, it is the Holy Spirit doing the leading. It is not the flesh. Let me say that again. For us who have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ alone, it is the Holy Spirit doing the leading, not the flesh. Philippians 2.13 says, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Every Christian still walking around in his or her unredeemed body, which is everyone in this room certainly, is still doing battle against his old fleshly nature. Romans 7. But that old nature does not control us. In Galatians 5.24, Paul says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We who have been called by the grace of Christ are not led by the flesh. We are led by the Spirit. Every single one of us. Romans 8.14 says, Paul says, for all, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And the fruit that the Spirit works continually to produce in us consists of the things that display the character of God, delight the heart of God, and cultivate a condition of communion and fellowship between us and all the rest of the people of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So why then would Paul find it necessary to exhort us who are already being led by the Spirit to also walk by the Spirit? Well, it must be the case that while the Spirit's leading is a constant in the life of every believer, our following isn't. God gives us the opportunity, not the right but the opportunity either to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit or to resist that leading. And sometimes we resist His leading. I don't know about you, but for me, that's a lot of times. When we resist the leading of the Spirit within us, we lapse back into behavior that contradicts our true nature and violates the character of God. But the leading of the Spirit remains. God continues to be at work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. All of us who are children of God through faith in Jesus Christ know personally, experientially, we know the reality of the Spirit's leading within us through His Word, through His people, and through our conscience. But we all also observe in our own experience that we do not always cooperate with that leading. Sometimes we resist. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh boy, Tom just bailed out on the biblical view of the sovereignty of God. He's saying that God somehow lets us resist 
the leading of the Holy Spirit. Isn't there something in Tom's job description that says he can't say that? Let me assure you, I believe with all my heart that we are 100% subject to the will of God every moment of every day. As, as my dear brother Kerry Dula has pointed out many times, God is the only one anywhere to whom the word sovereign even applies at all. And it applies to Him all the time in full measure. But some of us have a, a strange and I'm convinced un- unbiblical view of how God's sovereignty works in the lives of His children. We seem to think sometimes that if He ever actually gave us as His redeemed children a choice either to sin or to, to do that which is righteous, He'd be giving up His sovereignty. So He has to control every, every act. So we arrive at a view of sanctification that leaves us with no conceivable explanation of why some believers struggle against certain sins more and longer than other believers. If God grants us no real opportunity either to cooperate with or to resist His leading as He progressively works to conform us to Christ, then how is it that one middle-aged Christian man struggles constantly to resist the temptation to look at pornography and often fails, while another much younger Christian man who has just as strong a libido, probably stronger, doesn't indulge in porn at all? Why is it that one dear sister can't seem to control her affinity for gossiping, while another sister never repeats any unkind thing that she has heard about any other person? Is it because one of them is saved and the other isn't? That's an easy answer, but is it necessarily the biblical answer? I believe this passage and many others say it's not. That the reality is that the Holy Spirit's leading does not remove every element of choice from His children. Indeed, if it did, the exhortations in this very passage would be meaningless. Now, maybe this will help. If you're a parent, let me ask you this question. Do you structure out every possibility that your child can commit a sin? If you do, have fun with that. Some parents try really, really hard to do just that. Especially new parents. I'm sure I did that. I tried to do that when I was a new parent. But wise parents often give their children enough rope to almost hang themselves. And then they intervene at the right time. Does that mean they're giving up their authority or their control over the process of raising their children? That they've stopped leading? No, it does not. If I intentionally give my child the opportunity to choose either well or badly, knowing that the consequences of choosing badly will burn in certain lessons and make those lessons stick in his mind and heart in a way that would never have happened if I had just structured out every possibility of him choosing badly, have I therefore stopped leading my child? No! The gracious and sovereign leading of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer does not consist of Him making us act righteously in every 
situation and decision. If it did, that would mean either that nobody in this room is actually saved or that the Holy Spirit is doing a pretty lousy job of leading in many of our lives. In fact, in all of them. And neither is the case. The leading of the Holy Spirit consists of Him orchestrating every step in the process of conforming us to Christ. Including the steps in which He allows us to sin knowing full well that we will. That does not make Him complicit in our sin. That does not make Him the author of our sin. It makes Him the overcomer of our sin. The leading of the Spirit is one of the most excellent realities of being a child of God. Because when we are faithless, He is still faithful. God the Holy Spirit is at work in us every moment to conform us to Christ and to make us useful for God's eternal purposes. He is our power to live for Christ. Our power is not some impersonal force like in Star Wars. It most assuredly isn't something that we have to muster up from within ourselves. Our power to live well for Jesus Christ is a person. And that person is the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us. And the power that He has made to dwell within us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him above every authority, every throne, every name that is named, both in this age and in the age to come. That's power. The Spirit never turns a blind eye to our sin. Never. He never leaves us alone when we start trying to give CPR to our old, dead self. He is right here with us and in us every moment of every single day faithfully leading His children. The New Testament exhorts us over and over to put into practice that which is already true of us in position before God. To put on the new man that we've already put on. To put to death the old man that has already been crucified. Anytime we fail to acknowledge this constant interplay between the already accomplished fact of our positional righteousness and the ongoing progress of our practical righteousness, we create all kinds of needless confusion about how sanctification works. Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This is absolutely key to understanding the point of Paul's exhortations throughout this letter. In fact, to understanding his whole reason for writing this letter. Through Paul's words, God intends for us to know to know that we now live the Christian life exactly the same way we came to life in the first place. Or to put the emphasis and the credit where it belongs with God, God intends us to know that He sanctifies us now exactly the same way He justified us already. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And He does all of the above through the Holy Spirit. It is by the miraculous regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that God gave us life. It is by the miraculous love 
longing and leading of the Holy Spirit that we now live. How is it that we walk by the Spirit? How do we who have been made alive by the Spirit walk by the Spirit? How do we become more like Ginger and less like Sam and Bex? How do we become so controlled by our love for God that we passionately, deeply desire to spend time with Him and to do the things that delight Him? The answer is not elusive. God hasn't made it hard for us to grasp. The Holy Spirit is already working and is constantly working in us to produce that very transformation in us. What we need to do, beloved, is trust Him. That's what dependent people do. They trust the one on whom they are dependent. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live this way. By faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. Faith, trust, is expressed in prayer. As we constantly acknowledge our dependence on, on our altogether trustworthy God. Faith is expressed in humble submission as we set aside and forsake the things that are altogether unworthy of our trust. And faith is expressed in obedience as we joyfully do the things that delight the One from whom every good thing and every perfect gift proceeds. And the way that we fortify that faith, the way we fortify that faith is by getting to know its object even better than we do today. By becoming as intimately acquainted with who God is and what God has done as we possibly can. To behold His character and His beauty is to find Him beautiful and to trust Him more. Dear Father, I pray that You would you would cause us to, to recognize these things in a way that it's very personal, that, that impacts us very deeply. Lord, You have given us Your Spirit. You gave us, as the down payment of our in, in, eternal inheritance, You gave us a person. And that person is the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. He is the one who illuminates the Word for us. He is the one who intercedes in our prayers so that our imperfect prayers come to, into Your ears perfect. He is the one who empowers us. He is the one whose longing drives us and changes our own desires and impulses. He is the one who not he doesn't merely show us what love is like. He is the one who loves through us with Your love. Father, there is so much that we are just beginning to understand about the amazing, amazing reality of walking by the One in whom we live. Help us to understand more clearly and to walk always more steadfastly by the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.